Continuing in Mark, right after the Passover celebration where Jesus initiated the, the new covenant in his blood and his bread that we looked at last week and celebrated together, they sang together and then they departed from that upper room. And we pick up the story there in Mark 14, 32 and following. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and agitated. And he said to them, my soul is grieved. It is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came back to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. But again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. He came to them a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think we immediately feel the weight and the emotion of this passage, and I think can enter into it fairly easily. There's many themes being woven here in this extended passage. We know as we've been journeying, Jesus' arrest and his death is coming. He's been repeatedly foreshadowing this, and relentlessly it's drawing nearer, and it's now here. Jesus knows what is coming. He's resolutely moving towards it. We've seen that repeated theme. The destruction of the temple that he's been speaking of, all stones will be thrown down, but there's a greater image here in Jesus being the temple, that he would be the one to be destroyed. He has said this in, in John chapter 2, 19, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And at that point, they Thought he only was referring to the actual physical temple, but we're told by John, and it becomes clear through the rest of the story, but the temple he spoke of was, a, was his own body. His destruction is coming. What he had foretold was coming, and it will be raised in three days. Let's jump in on these other themes, I think a little more direct for us. Jesus withdrawing by himself again to commune with God his Father and to pray that's been a repeated theme throughout Mark, and we see it here at this darkest hour. The power and the poignancy of short and simple prayers, we've seen that throughout the story as well. We've resonated with some of these prayers prayed to Jesus by those coming to him in desperation, and now it's Jesus' turn to come to Abba Father with this short, simple, but powerful prayer. And again, we see the disciples struggling, struggling to endure, struggling with faithfulness, giving in to sleepiness, and we can enter through them again. 
This is Peter's first denial of Jesus. Peter represents the disciples in many ways and therefore represents us, and so we can easily enter in to Peter's story. I plan to talk, walk through Peter's story a little bit more next week as we see his more famous denial, the denial that I think most of us are pointed to. And when Jesus says to Peter, as we looked at last week, Peter, even before the rooster crows tomorrow, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, never, Lord. If I have to die with you, I would never, I would never de- deny you. And we point to then the time where he's outside of the court and Jesus has been arrested and the servant or the girl comes, a little varying way that that story comes down based on the gospel writers, but three times emphatically he denies that he even knows Jesus. We'll see that next week, but this is the first denial of Jesus and maybe just as significant. The term three times and three threes have been repeated again and again. In chapter 13, Jesus three times used the Greek word grekoreo, keep watch, be alert, stay vigilant. It can mean all of those things. Three times he uses that word. Here again in verse 34, he says that to the disciples. Keep watch, grekoreo, stay alert, be vigilant. He had told Peter, three times you will deny me. And here three times, Peter is falling asleep at the call to be vigilant, to watch, to be faithful. We can resonate with perhaps this denial as much as any. Certainly, we could point to many times in our journey where our words or our actions have denied Jesus or betrayed him. But maybe many of us would say, oh, I, I've, never, I've never vehemently denied in the way that, that Peter has that I ever knew Jesus. But I would guess that very easily we can look into this story of falling asleep at an urgent hour, giving in and yielding to our flesh, whether it's simply tiredness or the other desires of our flesh. We can resonate. And we hear Jesus' words to be vigilant, to endure, to be faithful, to watch. The final words that Jesus proclaimed in chapter 13, I'll remind you, Mark 13, 37, are really what continue to shape this this extended section. At that point, we connected very clearly uh, the the message of being vigilant and watching his disciples and being faithful because it's an urgent time and the season has come, the temple will be destroyed and all of the surrounding signs of of the ends of the time. And we looked at that prophetically saying, this is what always happens. This is not just a what will happen soon, but a what always happens. This is the way disciples are meant to to respond, and we, we, we take this as prescription, not just description, because of verse 37 of Mark 13. What I say to you, his 12 disciples, I say to everyone, watch, be alert, be vigilant. He extends it to all people, perhaps even beyond all disciples, but certainly to all who would ever follow Jesus. So this becomes prescription for us. And when we connect the two stories of Jesus' call to us to be vigilant, to watch, to be faithful disciples, and then we see the example of these disciples falling asleep repeatedly, we enter into that story with the same prescription. He's calling us all, just as he said to Peter and to James and to John, stay here, I'm going a little ways from you. You may not see me, you may not hear me, but stay vigilant, stay alert. I really am with you. I really am engaged fully 
in the work of the kingdom. Stay alert, stay praying, stay faithful. That becomes a call that we all are meant to receive. And perhaps even with the same prayers that Jesus prayed, with the same posture, with the same passion at times. Because we can receive and enter into the story and say, we receive this prayer and we resonate with Jesus and we are meant to pray that, we also tragically see ourselves in these disciples three times. Are you still asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the body is weak. Even at this point, the disciples still don't know how to pray. Three years with Jesus, and they don't know how to pray. Do we? Do we know how to pray? If there's anything that's maybe at the top of the list of the most consistent thing when I, when I invite responses from disciples of Jesus, that what would you like to grow in most? What do you feel like is, is your biggest gap area? Prayer is almost always right toward the top of the list. Probably makes the top three for all of us. And, and the, this is from those that I would consider prayer giants or prayer warriors. Like, I want to have a prayer life like yours, and they'll be responding, I need to grow in prayer so much. So truly, it's a life pursuit to grow in both a discipline but also the intimacy of prayer that we see modeled by Jesus. We know we have much room to grow. So God, help us. This passage is very, very instructive on how to pray. For Mark, it is the example of prayer. This is, this is the only recorded prayer of Jesus in all of the Gospel of Mark. From the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some would call that a prayer. I wouldn't. I would call that a declaration, a proclamation. He's actually quoting directly from Psalm 22, fulfilling a prophecy. Certainly there's heart anguish there, so we don't need to, we don't need to split hairs. But I believe what Mark is intending to show us here is the one prayer that Jesus invited his disciples to pray now, we know he prayed openly. In fact, in, in, in John 17, we have the extended priestly prayer. We have many prayers of Jesus in Luke and in Matthew, uh, different variations of, of the Lord's prayer. So we are taught to use other words. But for Mark, this is the one. The, the theme of Jesus withdrawing and praying and communing with God continues. We see it directly in, in chapter 1 and again in chapter 6, where he withdraws to pray and to commune with with his father, maybe for hours, maybe for days. In, in the wilderness, certainly he was there prayerful. So we just take notice when Mark then calls out one specific prayer and records it in the, in the context where Jesus is telling his disciples, stay here and pray, watch and pray, do this. We take this very seriously. And have you, have you stopped to ask how they knew that this is what Jesus prayed in that moment in the garden? They were not with him. In the next instant, his betrayer comes, Judas, and he's arrested and taken away. At some point, 
We have to believe after his resurrection and his time spent with the disciples when he was teaching them, he brought them into this moment and taught them how to pray. That night in the garden when you fell asleep, this was my soul's anguish. This was my heart cry. This is what I was praying, inviting his disciples to continue to be vigilant and to pray with the same sense of urgency. Would we? It's interesting. We're not, we're not told what, that you might not fall into temptation means. Pray that you might not fall into temptation. The word could also be trial, that you might not come into a time of trial or testing. So maybe that's, that could be connected more directly to actually what was coming in those next moments. But more, more likely in the context, Jesus is referring to their faithfulness. That you would not be tempted to give in to your flesh. Right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Many have taken that out of context to say all the ways that we can yield to, the, to, the, to our fleshly desires. It's just not in context. It doesn't mean that God isn't there in those prayers. But in the context, it's, it's related to faithfulness, to endurance, to perseverance, to alertness. And whatever it is, we know it's not a good thing. <laughs> yield to the spirit, not to the flesh. The spirit is so willing. The spirit is willing just as our spirit is often willing to stay close to God, to remain faithful, to be vigilant, to be disciplined. Yes, but our flesh is so weak. Even the words that we proclaim, the words that we proclaim through song today, our testimonies of our desire in the spirit to say, yes, Lord, to be faithful, to walk with him. And we, we yet know our, our flesh leads us and betrays us and leads us astray. Will we fail to grasp the urgency of the moment, of the circumstances we find ourselves in? When chaos and confusion comes, when doubt or distress comes, will we fall away, betray, deny Jesus? Will we simply scatter? I think we have a tendency to, to make this personal, and I think that's okay. I think that's good as followers of Christ. Lord, help me. Help me be faithful to you. I, I see in myself the tendency to, to dr withdraw, to flee, to deny, to betray, or to simply fall asleep. But remember, this is a collective. The disciples were together. They, it all together, they denied Jesus. They betrayed. They scattered from him. And so collectively, we too are meant to confess this, to repent this, to return, to recognize. And we look into our, our, broader, our broader community, our brothers and sisters, and seeing so many that have, have betrayed, have scattered, have fled from following Jesus, denying they ever knew him, or perhaps denying they ever were associated with the church that bears his name, while striving to continue potentially to follow in, in their own way. Yeah, we are called to community. We are called to one another. We are called to collective discipleship. And that's the emphasis of this message is that all are together. We are not alone. May we personally confess and repent, good, but may we collectively come to him with the same heart cry and desperation. May we learn to pray as Jesus prays in the way that Mark wants to show us. We're reminded, I think, in, in seeing Jesus' 
short and simple prayer here, some of the other short and simple prayers, not from Jesus, but from those that come to Jesus that we've tried to make our own throughout the study in Mark. Chapter one, the man that came to him with leprosy and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And we pray the same, Lord, make us clean. By your holiness, touch us, heal and cleanse The man with the demon-possessed boy in chapter nine, we've made this our prayer repeatedly, where he cries out to God in Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Because Jesus has said, for all things are possible for the one who believes. We see that theme coming forward here where he prays, all things are possible for God. The prayer of blind Bartimaeus in, in chapter 10, Rabbi, I want to see. That simple prayer could be a daily prayer for us. I want to see, Lord help. And here, if this is the only recorded prayer in Mark, short, simple, but poignant and powerful. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We must make this our own. We must embrace it. We're being invited into it in its intimacy and its intensity. Jesus teaches the disciples later this prayer so that they would pray it. They would wrestle like this, that they would take this posture, that they would engage in the world in this way, that they would not run or flee from the pain and sorrow and grief and anguish that exists in the world. The first word of the prayer is Abba, but that's not where the prayer begins. The prayer begins in verse 33. He took with them Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated and said to them, I am deeply grieved. I am deeply sorrowful, even to the point of death. That's where the prayer begins. From that place, then the words flow. I believe his grief is is a holistic grief. We could probably see it directed in some specific places, The prospect of what was to come through his coming arrest simply as as a human potentially enduring the pain of crucifixion had to have been anguish there. I think it would be right to to assume that Jesus recognizes the depth, the spiritual depth of of what this will mean, what he's taking upon himself in the cross and putting to death. He understands every every facet of atonement and he is walking resolutely towards it. He understands that that, that he is going to redeem, to be the, the means of redemption and rescue and deliverance as the Passover lamb, as the one being sacrificed. He's gonna carry that upon himself. There must have been incredible anguish and weight to that. Not just the prospect of it, but everything that made that possible. The brokenness in the world the religious hypocrisy and arrogance of of the Jewish leaders to the the Roman oppression and, and the evil representing the ways of the world and even to his own disciples who would come to betray him, deny him, and flee from him. There had to have been deep anguish. He was distressed by by all of the above, a holistic grief. The apostle Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 that, that Jesus became sin for us. He so embodied the sin of the world to put it to death. 
He became it, that we might become the righteousness of God. Martin Luther called it the great exchange, one view of the atonement. And Jesus was preparing himself for this, but was broken and in anguish by it. He uses the term, God, take the, the phrase, take this cup from me. The cup, that, that imagery or that language was used repeatedly through the Hebrew scriptures. Call out a spiff, I won't go to these places, but if you're taking notes, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, and even in Revelation 14, and these aren't the only ones, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Revelation 14, but the same phraseology of the cup refers to the pouring out of wrath or punishment or consequence of sin. And Jesus is saying, take this cup from me, remove it. He's in anguish over the prospect of this. I think it's right to pause and recognize and ask and reflect, does this same heart anguish, distress, and sorrow ever touch me? No, no, we're not asked to walk the same path as, as Jesus, of course, but as he is broken by the brokenness of the world, as he is distressed, as he is agitated by the, how this is, it's even possible that he must go to the cross. I think we look often into the brokenness of our world and we're annoyed by it, perturbed by it, maybe even angry at it, but are we, are we grieved and distressed to the point of sorrow where we could express as Jesus does even to the point of death? Going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed. I think we can willfully take a posture of on our knees or perhaps before our Lord. Perhaps you, maybe it's a regular practice. Perhaps it's at, at, at unique times in your spiritual journey where you've, you're on your knees or you're even laying on the floor. I bet for many of us, we have, we have moments in time where our body responded to a grief or to a pain or to a trauma without really even recognition, not a willful, I should take a posture of humility here, I feel heavy about this, which is good, very good. But times where you perhaps have crumpled to the floor in a moment or a certain news that you received and your body is responding without really even thinking, it's all you could do. It seems we feel that, I'm not, meant, I'm not trying to take us back to that place, I'm, if, you, if you have been there multiple times, I am sorry, you remember, your body remembers. What I want you to hear and see in Jesus is that your God knows. Jesus knows. He's been there. He's in that place. He threw himself to the ground. I always, I always first just picture that he's laying on his stomach with his hands out. I've taken that posture before. Perhaps he's in the fetal position on his side. It's a natural response of our body in times of, of deep anguish and distress, almost without thinking about it. 
and we're not told the posture exactly to, that we might emulate it, but to say, God, is my heart ever this distressed by the pain and brokenness that is in the world? And I think we rightfully recoil from that. Our God recoils from that and yet knows it. There's a deep tension. It's palpable in this moment. It's so poignant. Luke would describe it as he, he sweat like he was sweating blood. That's the kind of anguish that Jesus was, was under in, in this moment, in this time. What a contrast. And this is where it hits, hits home for us disciples, right? The contrast. Where are the disciples at this moment? Jesus didn't ask them to be in anguish on the ground. He said, stay alert. Stay with me. Stay vigilant. He was carrying something and walking something that maybe only in moments and glimpses of our discipleship we would ever feel. But where he calls us is to be vigilant and alert. And while he's on the ground or in the fetal position, crying out, sweating like, like drops of blood, the disciples are leaning against the stump of a tree with their arms crossed over their full bellies, head nodded and snoring away peacefully three times. That's their posture. Abba is the first word of the prayer, but it's not where the prayer begins. It begins with this anguish, this posture. Then from there, the words flow. Abba, Father, very instructive. Abba is, is the most intimate word they had for the paternal relationship. Jesus invites us into that intimacy. You've probably heard it maybe in the English translation as daddy. Not everyone grew up saying daddy or dad, but da you had a term of endearment that you alone called your father, perhaps, not all of us. I know different relationships with, our, with earthly dads. Perhaps if you are a dad, your, your kids, the, the, one, the term that only your kids call you, whatever that is, that's, that's Abba. To me, I, I feel it more as Papa. I, I, didn't, I didn't call my, my father Papa, but for whatever reason, I feel Papa. This is what Jesus was saying to his father. It, more than a, just a term of intimacy, though it is that, it's a heart cry. It's a plea. Papa, help. Papa. That's why I, I feel that. And that's what he's crying out to his father. Take this from me. Let this cup pass. Rescue me. His humanity is, is so on full display. Mark's been doing that throughout the story. I think it's the most emotional of the Gospels, most kind of just real, tangible humanity of Jesus on full display. We're never meant to look at Jesus as sometimes human and sometimes God. He, he is Jesus. He is Jesus, and we see him in his fullness. We try to put words to that because we see him in this full Humanity, we would say in this moment, this anguish, knowing what's to come, knowing the theological implications, knowing that it must happen, knowing that if, if we get our minds into this eternal perspective, he was with, with God the Father, one with, and said, I will go, and came. Knowing all of this, he in this moment is crying out, take it from me, another way, God, Papa, another way. I think this more than the specific words. I think they're good words to pray, and we'll get to thy will be done. An amazing prayer. But I think this understanding informs prayer, and it's reminded me of, prayer, of, of the heart of prayer so much 
this week, would you be invited into this, inspired by this? There's some tension here, clearly. Jesus is praying for another way. It's a beautiful paradox. There could be no other way. Jesus knew that. And yet, in this moment, he's crying out, another way, God. This should encourage us as we come to prayer for those in distress, for those hurting, for the state of our world, for the brokenness, for the pain, for the trauma, for the abuse, for the war. Another way, God. We join Jesus in that prayer. It mu we must be there and that must inform the thy will be done. Because this is not a thy will be done resignation. This is not resignation. I think sometimes we can say thy will be done, not my will, but thy will, resigned to what is not God's will. Praying for a sick family member. Perhaps on their deathbed, perhaps in an accident. God, heal, save, do a miracle, rescue but not our will, but your will. As if his will was not to heal or rescue or save. No, that is his will. What we're praying is, Lord, another way, another way than this brokenness, another way than death, another way, God. There is a yielding, there's a surrender in not my will, Recognizing I don't see all. But Jesus had seen all. And he's praying another way. Rescue. Let this cup pass. All things are possible for you, God. All things. Tension here? Paradox? I see it on some of your faces. How do we pray like this? How does our trust grow? in the sovereignty of God, in the goodness of God, while looking into our world and saying, this is not your will, God. You know this, right? The, the world is not in God's will right now. Does that mean God doesn't get what he wants? He will. What God is willing is endurance. He is willing to endure with humanity now. That's what he's willing. He is not willing the pain, the brokenness, the division, the death, sin, and evil. These are not his will. We know this because Jesus teaches us how to pray in the most famous prayer, Mark's, or in Matthew 6. Whenever you pray, pray like this. God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that indicate? Your will is not fully done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be more, Lord, more and more, your will be done. Jesus' heart cry is in the, in the tone of the lament psalms in Scripture. Maybe we've often tried to just gloss over all of the pain and lament songs, psalms, prayers. We have a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. We don't have one called Praises or Rejoicing. That's instructive. There's much praising and there's much rejoicing, but we have lament. And Jesus is lamenting here. 
You don't have to look far. I just started scanning through some of my, I have a list of lament psalms from my journeys through the psalms and just started scanning some. Psalm 6.3, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Sounds like Jesus in the garden. Psalm 55, verse four, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death assail me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has has overwhelmed me. To be faithful as a follower of Jesus, a disciple, we need to learn to lament. For some, it's easy because of what we've been asked to walk through. For others, we need to engage the pain and the brokenness in our world and invite God to help us be touched in heart by it that we could pray then the same way, take this anguish, rescue, deliver. I see no way out, but all things are possible for you. All things are possible. That's a theme that's been recurring. Mark chapter nine, he said, as I mentioned, he said to the, the desperate father, all things are possible for the one who believes. In chapter 10, verse 27, he looked at his disciples and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. And here's Jesus now putting into practice those words that he was teaching his disciples in prayer. All things are possible for you, God, Abba. Yet not my will, but yours be done. What a beautiful, powerful paradox as we pray, God, another way, and yet strive to yield our spirit and our way What a contrast again to the disciples. Mark chapter 10, again, verse 35. Remember when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And we were convicted then that maybe without that brazenness, a lot of times that's the sound of our prayers. God, we need you to do what we're asking you to do. Sometimes that may be in accordance with his will. But the heart posture here says... God, your will be done. What we know of your will, what we know of God's will, wholeness, healing, deliverance, rescue, freedom, love, peace. This is his kingdom, righteousness, justice. This is his way. This is his will. That's what we're praying. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. By that happening, that extends to bless all of us. Too often our our prayers are are, are too small for what God wants to do. Let's end with Romans chapter 8. What will we pray? How will we pray? First, notice... Notice that Jesus repeats this prayer. It doesn't mean he didn't use other words. But three times, Mark tells us, he went away and said, praying the same words, the same way, for an hour. I think that's very instructive on a practical sense. We're really getting at heart-level stuff more than we are just the words we say. But, but often, that's where we'll get in Romans here, we, we don't know what to pray. You ever feel, I don't know what to pray. My words feel not enough. They feel wrong. I stumble over them. Good, that's normal, that's right. Words do get in the way often. 
Even for Jesus, what we're showing here, again, doesn't mean he didn't pray other words, but it seems that he is repeating these words again and again and again, like a mantra. Not to try to get God's attention or get him to move. That's not what we, God's not a pinata that we have a stick with the right kind of words. But this will help us get words out of the way. I know for me, some of my most powerful extended times in personal prayer are when I have a short, simple prayer that I repeat over and over, often slowly, maybe once a minute, as then I'm just trying to engage in the presence of God. Use this prayer as a guide. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount and teaching them to pray, whenever you pray, pray this. Doesn't mean don't personalize it and make it real, but there's something about the repetition that can invite us into that place. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this pain, this anguish, this heartbreak, whether you're praying into, interceding for another, or whether it's personal, Take it another way, God, yet not my will, your will be done, your will be done. Find a time, even this week, think about it now, a time that you could carve out an hour, maybe it's in a walk, maybe it is with a posture similar that you're being invited to. That'd be, that, that, that'd be some extended work for most of us, How do, an hour, so maybe it's start smaller than that. Don't say, I can't do an hour and do nothing. Start at a place where, look at, think about your week. What would that take to carve out a space to pray like this with repetition? And maybe you know not else what to pray. That's where we get, and we'll close here with Paul's exhortation for how to pray in the great Romans chapter eight. I'll read the extended passage. You can get there in your in your Bibles or your apps if you want. Romans 8, 22 through 28. I think it's just a very instructive commentary even on this prayer in this moment or this same heart feel. Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have, we, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as children and the redemption of our bodies. In this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. In the same way, the Spirit will help us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Thank you, God, for that. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. The Spirit will help us when words fail us, when we know not even what to pray, but we start to join in this heart anguish that Jesus had. Words can get in the way and that we need them not. We need but groanings, whatever that would be like. Trying to express something that we can't put into words, the Spirit will translate that, so to speak. We'll take that. God will know that heart 
We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I know we've taken that verse and made it very personal. That's, that's out of context. So it's in my list of one of the verses that's taken most out of context. Paul is speaking to the church, to the disciples, to everyone. It's collective. That's all, that's, that's his discourse here. Not that there's not personal application, but just as we take We'll pick on Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to give you a future to make you prosper. That's not a personal declaration to you or to me. That reveals the heart of God, and it was for a specific people, Israel, at a specific time. Romans 8, 28. I know we sang it in a song this morning, and I think we can make it personal, but the promise here is not that everything in my life will be good one day. And so even this pain, it must be good one day. That's not the promise. God's promise is he will work all things together for the good of his kingdom, which you are a citizen. That's what he's doing. There's no false hope here. His heart is for your thriving and your good in every way at all times. It is. But we know God's will is endurance with the pain and the loss and the brokenness in this world. That's his will. He's enduring. I don't understand that will. No, I don't think you do either, right? We're praying into that. We're praying into the promises of God. That in his cosmic vision, he will work all things for the good of his people the collective. We pray into that. We praise God for that. It's just as hopeful. It's just not as me-centered. Thank you, God, that you are doing something so much bigger in this world. Let's lean into that prayer. Let's lean into this heart as we are able. This can't be fabricated. I, I this is me emotional about it, but being very careful to not try to push us to a place that is dependent on human emotion. God, give us your spirit. Give us more of you. Help us see with your eyes that our bodies, that our posture, that our prayers would match yours because you are broken by the pain in this world, by the loss in this world. Jesus, you are praying, you prayed for another way for rescue, for deliverance, another way. God, we look into our world and we pray, another way, not this way. There's too much hurt, there's too much loss, there's too much fear. We know that's not his will. God, your will be done, we pray.